Welcome to Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast where you can listen to our latest sermons filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're in the car, on the couch, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Many years ago, when I was in a different ministry, uh, there was someone in the church who approached me and asked me if I'd be willing to meet with, uh, with her mother, who was close to, if not in her 80s. Uh, but she had been suffering from depression for several decades, and all because of some things that she had done in her past that she was not able to move beyond. And, and this state of depression from the guilt and shame that she was feeling about those things, it was keeping her from experiencing all the good things in her life. Uh, so for being her age, she was in really terrific health. Uh, she had her independence. She had what seemed to be a very lovely uh, daughter and son-in-law. So in, in my visit, we spent some time praying and, and talking together. And uh, then I, I, I read every Bible verse, every passage of Scripture that I could think of having to do with confession and forgiveness. You know, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I took her to Romans chapter 8 where it says that we're no longer condemned by our sin because of what Jesus did. And that Jesus uh, replaced our sin with his righteousness that we might be called the righteousness of God in him. And after all this time of reading, I was amazed to find that she knew almost all of those passages. She had most of them memorized. I was kind of blown away by that. She knew in her mind that Jesus had washed her sin completely away. But she was either unwilling or unable or maybe both from being able to connect with it in her heart, in her life, or in her soul. And there would be nothing that I would ever be able to say to her in, in future meetings or, or what anyone else would be able to say to her that was able to break, free, break her free from that toxic shame that she was feeling. Now, this all happened about 11 years ago, but I remember this so clearly. Uh, I, I don't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I mean, I remember this so clearly because I really believe with all my heart that she had a relationship with Jesus. I believe at some point in her life, she had committed her life to him and that she, she, she knew Jesus. She had trusted him to be her Lord and Savior. And the thing that's just so tragic for me is that she was not able to live in the freedom that was provided to her by what Jesus did for her. She would not allow herself to experience the joy of the Lord, but instead she had made shame a spiritual discipline because any time that uh, you'd see the love or the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness and healing of Jesus start to break through, she would shut it down immediately and go back to this same phrase that she repeated over and over and over again. God can't forgive me for that. God can't forgive me for that. We never found out what that was, but whatever that thing was, she was convinced God was not able to forgive her for it. She knew that he had, but she could not connect with it. And I believe, I believe that it was her belief that by staying in this place of guilt and shame and depression, that she was somehow paying her penance for the things that she had done. Now, being completely honest, I, I think the way that she felt about her sin is sometimes the way I feel about mine. I, I remember back to some of the things that I've said or done that have caused me great embarrassment or someone else great embarrassment or that's hurt somebody else. 
And then those feelings of guilt start coming back. And if I stay there for too long, it gets to a point where I don't even want to. I can't look in Jesus' direction. I'm wondering if maybe you're hearing this right now and you might be feeling the same thing. You might be dealing with the same thing. Maybe you experience that same feeling. Well, that's what the Israelites were experiencing here in Nehemiah chapter 8. So let's go ahead and look at that. Nehemiah chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, it says, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law uh, before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah, and on his left were Padeah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them and he opened it and the people stood up. Now I'm just gonna pause right here just for a minute because something truly amazing is taking place right here. We have uh, uh, men and women and it says everyone who was able to understand. That includes children. Anyone have any children? That that includes preteens. You have a preteen? Teenagers, you have a teenager, young adults, adults, senior citizens, and they stood and listened to the Bible being read for seven hours. I dare you to do that in your home. See how long that lasts for. But it's incredible. And nobody there was forced to be in that place. No one had to be there. It was out of this earnest desire in their souls to stand and listen to God's word being read. It wasn't even a message with a ton of illustrations. It was just the Bible being read. Now, I've, I've heard stories and I've seen uh, uh, films from missionaries that, that are experiencing this same exact thing. They go into some of the most remote places of the world and some of these tribes and towns and villages with, with maybe only 50, 60 to 100 people in them each. And as they're reading the Bible, the, all the people of the village, everybody comes together and they stand for hours and hours or sit down on the ground, the dirt, for hours just listening to the Bible being read for days at a time. It's just an incredible thing to see. Uh, The only time they pause is when they eat and sleep and then they come right back to it. There was something being taught that had never been taught to them before. There was something different from everything they had ever been taught before. Something so life-changing that it was going to change their entire worldview. They listened so intently because the first time, this is the first time in their lives that they had been spoken a truth. They had been told a truth that the Spirit of God affirmed in their souls as truth. 
And that's what's happening here in Nehemiah 8. Truth is being spoken. For the very first time, this truth had been proclaimed this way. Remember that the walls of Jerusalem, they were broken down uh, by the Babylonians. That was in 586 BC. The Israelites had been in captivity now for 142 years. For 142 years, the walls of Jerusalem had been in ruins. And now, for the first time in any of their lives, they're standing in their ancestral city, protected by its walls, and listening to their priest teach them about God's covenant with them. So yeah, they stood for seven hours listening to God's word being read, the perfect law of the Lord. Let's read on here in verse six. It says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Sabate, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalida, Azariah, Hozabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. I was in a church for a few years back in college, and there was a pastor that always had this, this saying over and over again, he'd repeat this constantly, it was that the Bible is not for information, but transformation, which only comes through application. I mean, it sounds really good, it all rhymes, but it's it's really, there's something terribly wrong with that. There's something missing. Jesus. Jesus is missing from that. Now, if, if the only reason we go into the Bible, open it up, is for self-examination purposes, well, the best we can hope to do then is find areas of our life that need work and then hope to change those things for some uh, idealistic individual that, that really, it doesn't exist. Now, what's interesting is that that same pastor also called the Bible God's love letter to us. Now, I've never opened a love letter from Daria that uh, my wife, I <laughs> quantify that. Uh, so so it's, uh, I've never opened a love letter and then examined myself with it. No, the reason for me to read a letter from someone that I love and that loves me is to get to know that person better to hear the intimate words they have to say to me and give me something in turn to respond to. That's what the Bible is. It's this love letter of God. When we open it, we want to experience more of Jesus, to know him more. That's the whole purpose. And then as we do that, it's Jesus who does the work of transformation in our lives. It's not ourselves. It's all the work of Jesus. So knowing Jesus better, getting closer to him, that's what does the changing work in our lives. We see ourselves in light of who Jesus is. And that's, that's where the change can happen. That's when we start to feel remorse for the places that we've missed the mark. This is who Jesus is. This is where I'm at. That's where we mourn. That's where we grieve. That's where we weep. 
We become more aware of the ways that we are unlike him. And what that does is it brings us, hopefully, to a place where we repent. We turn from the things that we've been worshiping, and we put the focus of that worship back on Jesus Christ. So when the Israelites were faced with the reality of who they were and how far they had come from God, their reaction was to mourn, was to weep, was to grieve. And they stood listening to God's word, grieving over it. And when we are faced with hard truths about ourselves, it's good to have that same reaction, to grieve it, to mourn it. It shows that we care about the state of our souls. It shows that we, uh, that we have remorse. And it shows that we care about the offended party when we do that. So that, that kind of begs the question for me here a little bit. Why would Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites want to shut that reaction down? What could possibly have been the reason that they would want to stop the Israelites from feeling this important feeling that would lead them to repentance? Well, here's the thing. After confessing their sin, after repenting of it, right? Repenting, by the way, it means to turn. It means to stop doing what you've been doing and start doing something else. It means to turn from, from away from the thing that, you're, that you had placed your worship on and to put it back on God. After having done that, it was no longer appropriate for them to grieve. Now, you and I, we can get stuck. We can get stuck in our grief and the shame that comes from uh, having sinned in our lives or having sinned in our pasts at any time, in anything, it could be anything. We, we can get stuck in the guilt of that, in the shame of it, even after being forgiven and knowing that our sins have been as cast as far as the east is from the west, understanding that we've been washed clean to mourn and grieve as if we are still guilty, it's not a good thing. That's not a good thing anymore. Of course, the physical parallel to the spiritual uh, uh, state that the Israelites were in in this book of Nehemiah was the wall being broken. And so using that same physical illustration here, uh, for the Israelites to continue mourning and grieving over the sin that had been confessed and repented of would be the same as them going outside the now completed walls and mourning and crying and weeping over the fact that they were broken down in the first place. And that would have done nobody any good. There's no way forward in that. So for us, the knowledge that we have sinned should never keep us from experiencing the truth that Jesus died for us. The knowledge that we have sinned should never keep us from experiencing the truth that Jesus died for us. The guilt of our sin should never keep us from experiencing the forgiveness that Jesus offers. The shame of our sin should never keep us from experiencing what it feels like to be loved by Jesus. And the pain of our shortcomings should never keep us from experiencing the hope of a future in heaven or any of the other promises of God. And so for the Israelites, the time of grieving was over and it was time for them to celebrate what God was doing in them. And so we pick up here in verse 10 as we look at Nehemiah's instructions. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. That sounds so good right now. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. 
Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, anytime in scripture, it's, it's very, very easy to take the meaning of the joy of the Lord as being the joy that we receive from the Lord. It's something that we experience that we get from him. But that's not what's being talked about here. The joy of the Lord in this context is the joy that the Lord feels for his people. I've just taken a step away from this just for a minute. Wow. God experiences, he feels joy because of us. Let that sink in for a minute. That's a weird thing to think about. Because when we talk about joy, I mean, <laughs> in this relationship that we have with Jesus, it's, it's really kind of a one-sided blessing deal, right? We're the, like the one-sided beneficiaries of that. We get way more than we give. We are shown way more than we show. We are offered way more than we offer. So you think the joy should always be on our side. And it's just outside of my realm of ability just to fathom how much God loves me, how much he loves you, that he experiences joy because of us, because of me, because of you. But since that is the case, friends, there's no more need for grieving. And it's time to celebrate what God has done and is doing in your life. And that's what Nehemiah meant when he said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's your confidence. It's your ability to get up and move forward. And their grieving turned into celebration. God is joyful because of us. He's joyful because of us. And for someone listening here right now, maybe this is something you really needed to hear. Maybe this is something that, that just might make you feel a little bit more whole this week. Maybe you've been so down on yourself that you can't bring yourself to realize that God has favor for you. Now, when I was in middle school and high school, we used to refer to getting down on yourself all the time as dogging yourself out. And uh, that, that's kind of a funny phrase. I know it's Pennsylvania strange. Don't worry about it. You don't have to take that on and use it. Uh, if you want to, go ahead. I, I don't encourage you. It's not a, a really common saying. So you're dogging yourself out. And really what that's kind of referring to is how people sometimes treat and yell at their dogs for breaking something or ruining something of great value. They, they yell at the dog and it's really that bad dog mentality. And that's what we do to ourselves. Bad dog, bad dog. You kind of put yourself in the corner, rub your own nose in your mess. That's what dogging yourself out means. And so the time for dogging yourself out is over. When you've confessed, when you've repented, no more grieving, no more weeping, no more mourning, no more dogging yourself out. It's now time to celebrate what God has done. Celebrate that you have brought a smile to the face of Jesus because you've turned toward him. So let his smile, let his favor, let his joy be the motivation 
for your celebration. And that's exactly what the Israelites do here as we read on in verses 13 through 18. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it uh, throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, go out into the hill country and bring, bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters as, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their, on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an, as an assembly. If you and I, if we're not vigilant, if we're not careful in this, our worship can become just another routine thing. Not genuine, not authentic, not effectual. Our acts of worship can essentially become habits or even spiritual disciplines instead of being the result of the overflow of celebration that's taking place in the heart. And this is why it's important that we come together, whether online or in person, once a week, so that we come together, we remember, as we worship together, we remember the good things of God. Otherwise, it's really hard to keep that energy up. <laughs> worship is an overflow of the celebration taking place in the heart. That's hard to keep that up on our own. And that's why the Israelites, they observed, I think it's like 24 festivals or days of celebration so that the things that God had done for them in the past would always be in front of them giving them something to continue worshiping uh, God for. But even then, as we just read, even those celebrations repeated year after year, some of those got lost as mundane practices. As we see here, they stopped celebrating them the same way. One of the things I love the most about this chapter, this passage, is I get to see what happened when their passion was reignited. They celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles in a way that their ancestors had 800 years before now. Then the end of verse 17 says, their joy was very great. When you and I, when we connect uh, we connect with the joy that the Lord experiences because of us. First of all, it's an amazing feeling, but we get to experience joy because of it. When we connect with the joy that Jesus has because of us, we in turn can't help but feel this kind of overwhelming feeling of joy that at least for a brief moment, everything else is secondary to that feeling. You want to keep chasing that feeling. Like nothing else matters. That's the only thing that's important to you in that moment. 
but what happens when we don't connect with the joy of the Lord on a personal level is that we limit our worship of God. Either it's not as passionate or maybe just limited to an activity we just do, let's say, once every Sunday morning. Maybe it becomes a habit or, or even a programmed response. And that's kind of how Israel's uh, been observing this particular festival for the previous 800 years. It was just a mundane thing, something we just do. But when this group of people felt what it was like to connect with God's favor for them, it changed everything. And when we connect with the joy that Jesus experiences because of us, everything changes. To really know that you're a source of joy for Jesus, it changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we think about Jesus. It changes the way we worship. And that's because we can't help but be filled with this tremendous great joy ourselves. And after a year like the one we're still having, I think we could all do with a lot more joy. So for the Israelites, what, a day that began in grieving and weeping and mourning ended with celebration. The joy of the Lord was their strength, and it's our strength too. And in closing, I, I, I don't know where you're at right now. I, I, maybe there's something buried deep down inside of you that you've not yet confessed to or repented of, uh, but it's put a wedge between you and Jesus. Maybe there's something, someone that you've offended that you need to apologize to them as well and ask for their forgiveness. But what happens when we bury these seeds of, of sin, unconfessed sin, and we, we bury them down, we hide them? What happens is that those seeds start growing bitter roots. And then what springs up from that is a bitter plant which ultimately only produces bitter fruit. And then just like the woman at the top of this message, can't escape it. It's all you're left with, bitterness. That's all you get, that's all anyone else gets from you. Not able to enjoy the things God has given you to enjoy, including the freedom that he offers from your guilt and shame. I know it's not the most comfortable thing to do, but if you want to experience that joy that comes from knowing that God experiences joy from us, we have to pull those plants out. We have to get rid of the bitterness, the bitter plants that were caused from the unconfessed sin. We have to confess and repent. And what that does is it allows that joy to come in. See, right now, those plants are taking up the space that that joy can't enter. When we remove those things, then we, can, then we can receive from God the joy that we experience because he favors us. And once you've done that, confessed, you've repented, understand something, it's time to celebrate, right? Time to stop dogging yourself out and start celebrating. Celebrating what God has done and is doing in your life and through your life. You're able to stop living in guilt and shame. You can stop putting yourself down 
you can begin celebrating knowing that the God who created everything experiences joy because of you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you, uh, there are no words to express our, our awe, our sincerest thanks, our amazement, just how much you love us. And it's so much deeper, so much more to know that you experience joy because of us. I pray that if there's anything in anyone's life listening right now that's keeping them from experiencing that, connecting with it on a personal level, that you by your Holy Spirit would call it out in them, that you'd give them the, the, the willpower and the strength the desire to confess it, to turn from it, return their worship back to you, and that way connect with the joy that you experience because of that. And let that grieving, that mourning, that shame and guilt be turned to celebration that our joy would be very great. Let us find new ways to worship you as we connect uh, with you on a deeper level, as we get to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray and ask these things, amen.